If you have your Bible, I'd like to encourage you to join me in Luke chapter 12. We have been studying Luke chapter 12, and this is our third week. I want to reset the context for you so that you can remember what it is that we're studying and looking at. In Luke chapter 11, Luke tells us that Jesus has attended dinner in the home of a Pharisee. As Jesus was navigating the dinner in the home of the Pharisee, they began to pepper Jesus with questions. They were trying to get him to stumble. Jesus addresses them directly and the mood in the room clearly changes. You can sense the vehemence in the room and as the mood changes, the Pharisees and the lawyers are really seeking to trap Jesus. As the meal is going on, Luke tells us, out in the streets, mobs of people have gathered. So many people, Luke says, that they're actually stepping on each other. A myriad of people, maybe up to 10,000 people on the streets and down the alleyways as Jesus exits the house. He steps out into the street and immediately he addresses his disciples. And there are a few learners there. So few that he'll call them in this context his little flock. In the midst of this mass of people, in the midst of this toxic mood, Jesus teaches invaluable lessons. The first thing he says fearlessly in front of the Pharisees is beware of hypocrisy. He tells his disciples, be real. He'll then tell a story about a rich farmer and he says to his disciples, and beware of covetousness, be content, don't be dominated by financial matters. And this morning, I think Jesus reveals his awareness of the human condition in such poignant fashion. He's going to prove to you that he knows you and he knows your mindset and he knows your world as he works on anxiety and worry. Henry Ward Beecher wrote this, every tomorrow has two handles. We can take hold of it with the handle of anxiety or the handle of faith. I can say to you this morning as a believer, we don't have to be controlled by worry. It is easy, terribly easy, too easy, too much of a habit for us to be caught up in the unknown and worry about what might happen tomorrow, what might happen this week, what might happen down the line. And in these verses this morning, Jesus is going to address this directly. In the midst of this mass of people, in the midst of this toxic mood setting, he's going to tell his disciples, and I want to begin reading in verse 22. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens. For they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? Which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. 
They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. As Jesus stepped into this street scene, He says, be real, don't be a hypocrite like these Pharisees. He says, be content, don't be dominated by covetousness. And this morning he says, be fearless, don't be controlled by worry and anxiety. Nearly 40 years ago, beginning in 1985, and as I wrote that, that shook me, 1985, nearly 40 years ago, UCLA began asking incoming freshmen if they felt, quote-unquote, completely overwhelmed with life. In 1985, 18% of incoming freshmen said they felt completely overwhelmed by life. By 2010, 29% said they felt completely overwhelmed by life. And this most recent survey, 41% of incoming freshmen said they felt completely overwhelmed by life. And for every older person, they're thinking, I knew they didn't make them like they used to. Well, the fact is, the world isn't what it used to be either. 41% of incoming freshmen saying they are overwhelmed with life. It led one blogger to say this, if you're a human being living in this century and you're not anxious, there's something wrong with you. So be anxious about that. Imagine, even in this room, imagine over the last 24 or 48 or 72 hours how much worry and anxiety and care has stripped from you. How much mental real estate you have surrendered to that and understand what Jesus is teaching. One pastor said this, it is frightening to be dangling in this inexplicable universe and feeling all alone and not being able to figure out why you're even here and where you're going. He said, I understand why people take drugs and drink and go on eating binges and shopping binges and wild adventures and all kinds of things to fill their mind with other thoughts. We're living, he said, in an anxiety-ridden culture. And the amazing thing about it is this is the most indulged, the most lavish society ever. This is the most comfortable society ever. This is the society that has the most, but it is the most angst-ridden, anxious, stressed out, panicked culture ever. He went on and said, no worry goes unnamed. No worry goes undefined. No worry goes uncatalogued. No worry goes undiagnosed. And no worry goes unmedicated. They just go unrelieved. He concluded by saying people live with anxiety, they live with worry, they live with stress. It's so common that we don't even talk about eliminating it, we discuss managing it or coping with it. 
And the beauty of Scripture is as Jesus addresses this little flock of learners in the midst of this chaotic scene, He knows the human condition, He understands their frailty, He grasps that they're worriers, and even in this moment they're filled by doubt, and in effect Jesus says, stop it. This is a mandate that He delivers to them. It helps us to grasp that coming to Christ in faith alone does not really automatically erase all of the anxiety and cares and worries that we battle. If that were the case, Jesus would never have dealt with this subject like He does here with His followers. If Christians were just automatically immune to anxiety or worry, the Apostle Paul would never have written to one of the most mature congregations that we know of within Scripture in Philippians 4 and verse 6, Be careful for nothing. He wouldn't have had to take time to put ink to paper and send the runner with the letter and say to the believers at Philippi, be filled with care for not one thing, but rather offer all your concerns up to the Lord Jesus in prayer. Make your requests known. I note three times in this passage of Scripture, Jesus does something intentionally. You'll note in verse 22, He says, take no thought He'll come back in verse 29 and he says, Neither be ye of doubtful mind. And then in verse 32 he says, Fear not, thus be fearless. Grasp that Jesus says, Take no thought. Don't be of a troubled mind. He knows where the battle is for us. This was not a battle that Jesus was confronted with. But as he talks to his followers, he's saying to them, I get it. I know that your mind takes over. And he's telling them to stop. At least 12 times it's recorded in Scripture that Jesus, in effect, says to his disciples, Stop worrying. Don't be so anxious. One wrote, anxiety-free living is part of what the Lord offers. It's part of the gospel message. It's what we have who are in the kingdom if we want to take it. The best that the world can offer for you and I is to cope with, to manage. And Jesus will teach us here this morning that we can eliminate it. I don't mean that it will never rear its head again, but that if we correct our thinking biblically, we can eliminate worry and anxiety from controlling us. How? Jesus begins by teaching us this. Don't be torn apart. Notice again in verse 22, he said unto his disciples, Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life. What you shall eat, neither for the body, what you shall put on. If you're honest and you acknowledge, like I would, worry is so very destructive. Worry is so very destructive. Worry, as one wrote, is a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind, and if encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained, and it becomes a lifestyle. It's our habit. It becomes our way of life to be dominated and controlled by worry, to be torn apart. It may start as just a little bit of worry, and in all honesty, that's all it takes is a little bit. And then it becomes a dominant portion of our existence. 
The Greek word that is translated into that phrase, take no thought, literally means to be torn apart. When he comes back in verse 29 and he says, be not of a doubtful mind, that means don't be held in suspense like a ship that is tossed about in the storm. Don't be torn apart by anxiety. Don't live your entire existence dominated by the suspense of that which is to come. Stop living like a ship tossed about in the storm. Stop. I don't know if you are like me, but one of the worst things that happens in my life is that roll over and wake up at like 2.38 in the morning. Sometimes it's 2.42, sometimes it's 1.47. I could go on. You roll over and your mind is immediately going. And you are concerned and you are worried and there's nothing you can do about it. You think, well, maybe I'll get up and make a phone call. You can't. It's... 1.46 in the morning. Maybe I'll just head downstairs and get in the car and I'll go and see if it's open. It's not open. It's 1.46 in the morning. So what you do instead, if you're anything like me, is you alligator roll in the bed time and time again until you've robbed the covers. You hang a leg out to try to cool off. You bring the leg back under to try to warm up. You sit up in bed, you look around, you lay back down, you stack pillows, you flip pillows, you get up and even look out the window, like maybe somebody's out there. I don't know. Go downstairs, you try to eat a little something or drink a little something or take more ibuprofen or look for something stronger. Anything you can do to rattle your mind away from being controlled by this thing that is dominating you with anxiety and worry. And Jesus says plainly, stop. Stop being torn apart. Take no thought. Stop being of a doubtful mind. Stop living in suspense. Stop being like a ship tossed about in the storm. Even our English word worry comes from a word that means to strangle. Mental strangulation comes through fear and anxiety and stress and worry. Most of the time over the smallest of matters. Corey Tinboom said this, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. My worry is not going to change tomorrow, but my mindset in the moment certainly robs me from doing anything productive or being God-honoring today. Jesus says here, Don't be torn apart over the little stuff. Stop living with your adrenaline all the way up, living in suspense of that which is to come. And then he says quite plainly, the life is more than meat and the body is more than raiment. In effect, you can worry about the physical world or you can worry about the spiritual world, but you better make the choice as a believer to be mindful that there is more than this. It's not all about what we can see and feel. Jesus is anticipating what his disciples are thinking. And he delivers to them a command that literally says, Stop being anxious. Stop worrying. Stop being so controlled by stress. Wait a second, Lord. If we don't look after our needs, who will do it? If we give no thought for this life, who will think about this life on our behalf? And now very specifically, Jesus is going to enable us like a parent, like a heavenly father. He doesn't just say stop it. He helps us stop it. Don't be torn apart. 
pull yourself together. Now, I'm not just making this up. I'm telling you what the Bible is teaching us. Take no thought. Don't be torn apart. Don't be of a doubtful mind. Don't let your mind control you like a ship tossed in the storm. Rather, pull yourself together. How can I pull myself together when I'm completely falling apart? Verse 24. Consider the ravens. All right, I needed more than that, Lord. That's uh, Okay, that's not going to help me. In verse 24, and again in verse 27, Jesus says, consider. What he is communicating in that moment is, think perceptively based on knowledge and observation. That means you have a decision to make in that moment. Consider the ravens, Jesus says. They neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? In essence, when you're weighed down by worry, tell yourself the truth, and by telling yourself the truth, pull yourself together. Begin to think biblically, and what that communicates is think correctly. Pull yourself together. Use the power of observation. Tell yourself the truth. Consider the ravens. That's what Jesus is saying. Worry convinces us that life is made up of what we eat, what we wear, what we feel, and what we see. Worry blinds us to the reality, the truth around us. And Jesus is so intentional. Please don't lose the scene. Remember that he's standing outside of a Pharisee's house. Scribes and Pharisees who hate him, who eventually will work to execute and crucify him, are standing behind him listening in. People are so pushed together, they're stepping on each other. There are some disciples scattered throughout, and Jesus says, Hey, stop worrying. Stop worrying. Consider the ravens. He's intentional. If you went back to the book of Leviticus, and do you even go to church if you don't talk about Leviticus? Does it even count? The raven was really low on the ladder of importance. In fact, here's what we read, Leviticus eleven thirteen, And these are they which ye shall have in abomination among the fowls. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. And in verse 15, he says, every raven after his kind. The raven to the Jewish legal mind, the religious pharisaical mind, was an abomination. And Jesus has the audacity to say to his disciples, consider, use the power of observation and think correctly about the raven, this lowly, abominable bird. Which does not have in all of the farming terms that Jesus uses. Can't sow, can't reap, doesn't have a storehouse, and doesn't have a barn. The raven doesn't have the capacity to go prep the soil, to plant the seed, and then reap the harvest. It has no storehouse or barn that can protect all of its grain from the elements, and at least in the mind of the raven, it thinks, well, if we hit a drought or we have a famine, at least I can go out to the barn and find some seed there. None of that exists for this lowly, abominable bird. And yet, Jesus says, your heavenly Father feeds that bird. This doesn't mean that Jesus' followers aren't supposed to work. Many other places in Scripture, 
We see that work is honorable and that work is what God expects us to do. But explicitly here in this content, he is saying, stop worrying about everything. This common lowly bird is cared for by God. Let me read as one said, take a good look at them. The ravens are your antidote to anxiety. If God cares about them, think, what does that tell you about you who are uniquely created in God's image with an eternal soul and the ability to worship Him and serve Him and one day be joint heirs with Jesus Christ? Think about the ravens intentionally. Use your power of observation and if God will care for the raven, the abominable raven, don't you think He can handle your next meal? He then says, as we referenced, again, consider in verse 27, the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then, God so clothed the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? And here comes a harsh rebuke, O ye of little faith. Lilies and grass are pretty broad terms and out there in the nation of Israel along those hillsides there in the Mediterranean region that field would be covered with flowers naturally speaking and the grass would grow up and Jesus says to his disciples use your powers of observation be intentional rein in your mind pull yourself together by thinking correctly consider the lilies They don't toil, nor do they have the capacity to spin any garments. And yet, and this is not hyperbolic because Jesus is saying it, they're actually more beautiful in their natural condition than King Solomon was in all of his royal attire. And if God takes the time to paint the hillside of grass, which is going to grow up and be gone in a day and burnt up in the oven, think about how much more valuable you are than the grass. Think rightly. Think correctly. And that's what Jesus is driving at. If God's powerful enough to create the world, He's powerful enough to manage the world, consider your divine privilege, as it were, created in His image. And then He says this, O ye of little faith. He didn't really have to add that is I'm certain the disciples that were there were already feeling it. Lord, I am worried. I can't even move right now. People are stepping on the backs of my sandals. I see the Pharisees. I see the grimace on their face. I can almost feel the heat coming off of them. Jesus knew that there were those in that innumerable host who were following him only because he was doing miracles and feeding them and they were chasing him down to be in his presence to get one more meal and Jesus says stop. He's already told his disciples when he called them to follow him birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes but the son of man has no place to rest his head. When you follow me you're buying in to take every step in faith. You have little faith, that's what he says. That can mean, one, that your faith is small right now. You have to believe, you have to trust, strengthen and enlarge your faith. God cares and he will provide, just believe. It can also mean, pointedly, you're worried. You're overly anxious. Believe, trust, you're displeasing God. You're disappointing God. God knows you need these things. Quit being so distrustful. 
If we take this, O ye of little faith, and amplify it just a second and make it personal between us and Jesus, I think we feel the potency of it. If Jesus were to single out one of his disciples and call them up to him and said, let me ask you some questions. Are you worried? Yes, Lord. He would follow up and he would say this, then do you not trust my knowledge? And if it's not my knowledge, do you not trust my wisdom? Do you not trust that I know what's going on? Do you not trust that according to my plan, which has been sovereignly laid out, I have wisely seen that this is the path for you to go? Is it my knowledge or is it my wisdom that you don't trust? Or perhaps you don't trust my compassion. You think I've given you more than you can handle. You think I don't love you. Is it my compassion that you don't trust? What is it about me, Jesus could ask, that you don't trust? Do you not trust my power? Do you think I can't handle this? Do you not trust my care? If Jesus were to ask us, do you feel anxious? Are you controlled in your doubtful minds by worry? Perhaps we'd say in the affirmative, yes. And then if he got pointed with us and said, well, is it my wisdom? Is that what you don't trust? We'd hang our heads and sheepishly say, well, no, Lord, it's not that. Well, then it's my power. You don't think I can handle this. Well, no, I I wouldn't say that. So it's my compassion. You just think I don't care, that I don't love you. Well, no, I know that you love me, and I know that you care. Then if you know all these things to be true about me, Jesus would ask, what is it about me that you don't trust? Why are you controlled by a doubtful mind? Why are you dominated on the insides like a ship tossed in the storm? Then he does... Something that I need to hear in verse 25. He tells us how futile worry actually is. Which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? Here's what Jesus is saying. How many of you can just decide, I'm going to be taller? You say, actually, if I could use that one, it'd be skinnier. Or it'd be more hair. Whatever it is. Just apply it. Jesus says, let me tell you about the futility of worry. Which of you just can think, I want to be a cubit taller, and it happens? The answer is nobody. I love what Jesus does. I even sense some humor in it. He says this in verse 26. If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Jesus, being God in the flesh, is so powerful that to him, adding a cubit to your height, small peanuts. If you can't think, I want to add a cubit to my height and it happens. If you can't do that little thing, why are you worried? And then he's very generic in his statement. Then why are you so worried about the rest? He's telling us worry is futile. It's not changing anything about tomorrow. It's stripping you of strength for today. Worry doesn't work. It's not good for you. Worry does not produce anything. Worry has never built a storehouse, nor has it built a barn, nor filled either. Worry has never toiled, nor has it spun a garment. Worry has never brought one more meal. Worry has never put another stitch of clothing in the closet. Worry is senseless. Why are we so given to it? All of it is senseless. Stop being torn apart. That is literally the language. Pull yourself together by thinking correctly. Use your power of observation and tell yourself the truth. God cares about the ravens and he cares about the field of grass. You're more than that to him. He can handle it. 
Pull yourself together. How do I ultimately pull myself together? He gets really explicit in verse 29. And he says, here's how. Seek the kingdom of God. And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink. Neither be ye of doubtful mind. Don't live in suspense. All these things do the nations of the world seek after. Your Father knoweth what ye have need of these things, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. By the way, that's not a challenge. That's a command. Seek ye the kingdom of God. All the nations of the world, when Jesus uses that term, he's saying, all of those who are not of my kingdom, all of those who are not of the eternal kingdom, all the lost, all the nations of this world, they don't have the promise of God, so they seek after all of these temporal things. But not you, with every fiber of your being, with every ounce of your heart. You seek the eternal, you seek the kingdom of God. Your heavenly Father knows that you have need of natural things. Don't seek the temporal, seek the spiritual. Replace things seeking with kingdom seeking. Why would I do that? Because God knows what you need. Do you think God knows I'm going to make it to 88? Yeah, he knows. He's numbered your days. What if it's 92? He already knows. Do you think he can handle it? I'm sure he can handle it. You say, so pastor, what is it like to have mastered life with no worry? I don't know. I'm just preaching it to you. I'll figure it out after it's over. This is an ever-present battle. This isn't something that just dissipates. He's talking to everybody who believes. He says, seek. It's a very strong verb. Strive for. Strongly strive for the eternal. He knows. And for God, get this. It's not a question of power. It's not a question of resource. It's not a question of love or of mercy. It's a question of knowledge. And yes, He knows what you need. He knows. Sometimes what he knows you need isn't what tops your list of need. And in that confusion, we sometimes think God is whiffing at the plate, that God is missing the point, when in all reality, he's delivering exactly what you need. He knows what you need. Yeah, but I need a new job. But he knows you don't. And so the whole while you feel like God doesn't care and you're anxious and worried, he's saying, I'm giving you, I know what you need. I'm ahead of you on this. Hudson Taylor, missionary, served 50 years in China, never had guarantee of financial support. He was back in England and he was traveling. I thought this story was great. He was speaking, he was traveling, he was presenting the China Inland Mission for financial support. The story says Hudson Taylor was standing at a train station, waiting on a train. A pastor from the area recognized Hudson Taylor there at the train station and introduced himself. They were waiting for the same train. They got on together and sat together. Eventually, the meal cart came through their train car and the pastor offered to buy Hudson Taylor lunch and they enjoyed a meal together. After a while, the conductor came down the aisle to sell and or punch the tickets for that leg of the journey and Hudson hesitated. So the pastor offered to purchase Hudson Taylor's ticket. After the conductor moved on through the train, he asked Hudson Taylor if he had any money. Taylor smiled back at him and said, no money at all. The man said, but you were waiting for this train. 
and you needed to eat. How did you know I would come along and be able to provide this for you? Hudson Taylor looked at him and gave a famous reply that he had lived out for many years. He said, oh, I didn't know, but my father did. You say, well, that's dumb. So should I just go stand by the light rail and wait to get on? I wouldn't advise it. I mean, if you're that dumb, stand on the light rail track. Wait a while there. See what happens. I don't know. What I'm saying is he refused to be dominated by worry and anxiety and care and concern and stress that would do him no good. God knows what you need. The wrestling match that we have with God over what tops our list is more or less about what we want. If we could surrender every fiber of our being, all our focus in life, all our heart to be set on the things of God, He will take care of the rest. When God matters most, one said, worry takes a back seat. Peter, who was here on this moment as Jesus is given the Luke 12 discourse, will write later on in 1 Peter 1 or 5 7, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. If you're anxious about it, he cares about it. You could paraphrase that even. Whatever is on your mind was on his mind first. When Peter writes that he careth for you, he uses the present tense, Jesus never stops caring. It's an ongoing, never-ending caring. The problem is never that Jesus has stopped caring. The problem is always that we have stopped casting. And casting in 1 Peter 5-7 is an intentional action. It is willfully taking the weight off of our backs and handing it over to him. It is willfully setting down the weight that we are carrying on the ground and allowing Him to pick it up. It is correcting our thinking. It is pulling ourselves together by telling ourselves the truth. He cares. He knows. He has the resources and the power and the compassion and the love to take care of us. Remember, every tomorrow has two handles. We can take hold of it with the handle of anxiety or the handle of faith. And if you and I remember that there's more than this, we can handle today and tomorrow with faith. Would you please just for a moment bow your heads with me? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.